Welcome to On the Line with the AMA, the official podcast of the American Motorcyclist Association. I'm Alexandra Terhorst. Our guests today are AMA Motorcycle Hall of Famer Larry Coleman and 2014 AMA Female Athlete of the Year, Erin Sills. You probably already recognize those names as motorcycle land speed champions, but as you'll see, there's a lot more to each of their stories. Here's how each of them got their start. I'll throw it over to Larry, because I don't know the answer to this, Larry, for you, and I would love to hear about how you got started in racing, especially (laughs) sidecars. Well, I started in motorcycling in my hometown here in Chico, in Northern California. You know, I was 15 and a half. As soon as I could, I got a Cushman scooter, and then I, you know, advanced to the Honda 50, and then to the 650 Triumph. And when I was about 18, and then I went into the military, into the Air Force. When I got to Germany, I went to Germany with a a three-year tour, and uh, I got a BMW um, R60 and immediately started riding. Um, And somehow or other, and I'm not sure why, I became enamored with sidecars. I just thought sidecars were, because they were different, they were nifty. I don't know if it was because I could put a girl in there or I could carry more beer or what. (laughs) (laughs) Two motivations. And and I started going to the races. And the the motorcycle shop I went to in Germany, um, Mertinka BMW was the name of the business. And he was in Frankfurt. And um, he was a speedway sidecar racer. And he had been German champion. And I started going to the races with him. He invited me to go to the race with him. I'd throw the sleeping bag beside the car. And, and it was just great. You know, I was still in the military, but on weekends, we'd go to the races. And, and it further interested me in sidecars. And I think the defining moment was in 1968. I went to Hockenheim to watch the Grand Prix. And it was the last one of the year. And I watched, and I'll never forget this, I watched Helmut Foth who had designed and built his own dual overhead cam, four-cylinder motor, put it into a frame of his own design and drove it to a world championship. And I saw him win the world championship that year, and it really inspired me. And the next year, in 1969, I started racing as a passenger uh, on sidecar road racing in Germany in an amateur series. I just basically took my uh leathers to the races and my helmet and put my thumb out um and this wow. was advi- advised by <clears throat> i was reading the overseas weekly one day which was a newspaper published for the military and there was an article in there about a guy named bob harold and bob had stayed in germany as a civilian after his time in the army was done and he had become a passenger on a motorcycle. I said, boy, this is exactly what I want to do. And I contacted Bob. And to this day, we're very, very good friends. He lives just north of me in Northern California. Bob really got me started in sidecar racing. And I, I rode passenger for a year and a half or so, about a season and a half. And by that time, I had gotten out of the military, decided to stay in Germany. And a friend of mine that I was working with, I was working for a magazine selling advertising. And he and I started importing American specification Yamahas into Germany and selling them tax and duty free to GI to the Canadian PX. And we did this for a couple of years and then we sold the business. But in the meantime, that gave me the cash flow to buy my own outfit and I started racing. 
and then came back to the States in 1973 after having been a driver for a few years. And sidecar racing was just starting to take off in America, and then I continued to pursue my, my passion. But that's how I got started. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I didn't, I didn't know that about your background. That's awesome. <laughs> it, really, it, it really speaks to the intersection of passion and opportunity. You, you were passionate about it. You showed up at the races with gear in hand and you made the opportunity happen. And when that opportunity happens, you follow it. That's incredible. You're exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked at it. And then, <laughs> of course, later on, you know, as I went through my career in road racing, and was successful with two championships in 1976 and 1977. And and again, it was the timing was right. As far as sidecar racing, it was just coming into to vogue, if you will, in the United States. And uh, there was a gentleman who, again, another lifelong friend named Bob Bacher, who worked very closely with the AMA and Bill Boyce, who was the road racing director at the time, from about 1974, 70, well, 73, 74 is when he really started. And in 1976, sidecar racing became a part of the AMA Pro Series, full-blown pro class. And, uh, and then Wendell Andrews and I won the championship in 76 and 77. And we also went to New Zealand then and raced wow. in New Zealand. So there's lots of backstories, as there is in, <laughs> in every successful well, racing venture. It also speaks to the fact that you were a youngster, and you showed up at an event, and you were inspired by someone who was on the track. And then through your career, you've become the person that's inspiring others. And it, it really, to me, that's just such a meaningful thing about all sports, but certainly about motorcycle racing and, and motorsports. Right. When my road racing career wrapped up, that's when I got interested in land speed racing again through Bob Bacher, yeah. and that's where you and I met. That is where you and I met. I can't remember when it was, but I believe you were there racing the sidecar, and we were probably sitting under a tent at a start line around mile zero or mile one and had lots of time to get acquainted and talk. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. for our turn to race, yeah. And I met you and Andy, and you and Andy were quite a team, and, and you, in, in, in <laughs> fact, inspired a lot of people speaking of inspiration and i'm curious to know really how you kind of got started in land speed racing because that's that's really our common bond so i got started in motorcycling later in life than many i didn't grow up as a kid on on motorcycles i did grow up with a father who had a speed gene that i think he passed to my brother and i and uh my mother was also very encouraging of it, and I grew up in a household where it wasn't spoken as men did things and boys did things and girls did things. It was just that people did things, so right. um, there weren't any gender boundaries that were ever put in front of me or my brother, so we we just were taught to follow our passions and, and pursue our dreams pretty aggressively, and so I grew up in that environment, but I didn't start actually riding until I moved to San Francisco. I had my motorcycle license earlier, about 25, but when I moved to San Francisco, I had my motorcycle license, but hadn't really done much with it. And I met my now late husband, Andy, who you mentioned, and he and I shared um, the the passion for motorsports and the passion for speed, I will say. And um, when I met him, he had been um, riding quite a bit, and he rode uh, by himself mostly. And he said, I really want to teach you how to ride 
properly. And so here's an idea. And I agreed mm. with him. He said, let's, uh, why don't you ride as a pillion as a passenger with me for a while? And as I am riding, I'm going to tell you everything I'm doing and why in terms of, of the motorcycle. And Andy was five, three, and he always rode larger, taller bikes. So he had to plan ahead in a lot of ways that someone who might be six foot tall over a, over a smaller bike wouldn't have to do. And he would tell me that he would have uh, the way that he approached a gas station, the way that he approached an intersection. And as a pillion, he would, he would teach me those things. And after about a year, I got off the back and went out and bought my own motorcycle. And that's kind of where it all began for me. And from there on out, I was going to be behind the bike on my own <laughs> as opposed to being a pillion. But the way that we found land speed racing is pretty interesting. I think it's kind of fun. Um, Andy had sold his business and retired and had time on, on his hand and some money in his pocket. So he would go out and, and he enjoyed riding fast. So he would find safe places to do that. So he um, would go to Nevada and he might twist the throttle a little bit on an open road where he was sure that there weren't going to be any deer jumping out in front of him or cars turning left. And so he had a lot of experience on BMW motorcycles at I'll just call it faster speeds. I'll call it highway speeds for the sake of not encouraging <laughs> no, bad do, behavior. You, you can do that in Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he read an, a magazine article one day that talked about uh, Chris Hodgson, who's the owner of San Jose BMW Motorcycles, and Chris right. was building a land speed motorcycle. And so Andy, in his bravado, went down to <laughs> San Jose BMW and walked into Chris and said, hey, I'm here to apply for the job. And Chris said, well, I, I don't have any job opening, so I'm not sure what you're speaking about. <laughs> and Andy said, well, the job as your, as your land speed racer, I'm, I'm here. And he showed him the magazine, and Chris kind of laughed and said, well, um, that's interesting. Nice to meet you. Um, but our mechanic who's building the motorcycle is going to be the one to race it, um, so I don't need a rider. But by the way, what makes you think that you might qualify to be able to do this sport of land speed racing? And Andy said, well... And I, I know Chris well, well, so I can see this yeah. conversation take place. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and so Andy said, well, I have more experience at, and I'm just going to call it highway speed, he may or may not have said triple digits, than any uh, on BMWs than anyone else uh, probably you'll, you'll find on the planet because I am retired. I have some money in my pocket and I spend my time out uh, racing these bikes. And Chris and Andy became friends, um, but Chris politely said, said no, my mechanic's going to race it. And about a week before the Speed Week event, Andy got a call from Chris and Chris said, hey, do you still want to ride my motorcycle on the Bonneville subflats and race for me? And Andy said, heck yeah, sign me up. I'm ready to go. And apparently the mechanic who had planned to race it, his wife was pregnant and uh, she was due any mm. day. And so he wasn't, he couldn't, uh, he wasn't able to travel away from home. So Andy lucked into being able to go up and, and pilot Chris's motorcycle on the salt flats. And they, they didn't break a record that year except for perseverance. They, as Andy, I wasn't there that year, but as Andy says, um, they must have taken more than 20 passes. And, you know, that's kind of difficult on the salt to do. They just kept <laughs> trying and trying and tweaking and getting a little, maybe a little bit faster and a little bit faster. Um, so he got a lot of experience. He didn't break a record that first year, but got a lot of experience. So we went up a couple of years later. We, we rode up on our own motorcycles. And as you know, the Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials has something called Run What You Brung. 
and you can do technical inspection, minor technical uh, safety checks on your motorcycle and ensure you have the proper gear. And then you can go out and see what your own bike would do. And we'd ridden up there and I was on my, uh, my 1998 Honda VFR and I said, well, I want to do that. And so I took a pass and run what you brung. And from there on out, I said, all right, I actually want a real race bike. And, and this is a sport for me. <laughs> so so <the> rest, <laughs> I guess this, this history is what they say, right? <laughs> When you ask racing champions about high points in their careers, the answer isn't always the highlight reel you were expecting. What do you consider some of your highlights at Bonneville? There are a lot of memorable moments for me. My first record was incredible. Actually, my first record over 200 miles an hour was on our BMW S1000RR, and I finished the qualifying and then had to hurry up and do the return run and I the, it started raining which you know what that's like on the salt flats and so I finished the return run just in time for the rain to come in and it happened to qualify for a record so that was that was pretty memorable but but relating to you another one um, given that you are a uh, you're familiar with passenger and pillion in the sidecar but we had the opportunity <laughs> to just set a Guinness World Record up on the Salt Flats for two people as the fastest two people simultaneously on a motorcycle. And we decided to do it. And we didn't want to just have the man on the front and the woman as the pillion. So we qualified going one direction with Andy in the front and me as the passenger. And then on our return run, we switched it so that I was in the front and Andy was the passenger and ended up. I remember that well. <laughs> I think you were there. Yeah. I was there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, that, that was certainly was a fun and memorable moment for me. Your accomplishments at Bonneville, I mean, what you have obtained really have exceeded. Well, I mean, you've got a red hat, et cetera, et cetera. And then you know, the 200 mile an hour hat, um, which I never got there. Of course, I was trying with a sidecar, which is, and there's only been a few that have, have reached it with a sidecar. And unfortunately, I was not one of them. One of the highlights for me at Bonneville, and it's such a magical, wonderful place. I mean, just being out there in the morning every day for a week at, at, at sunrise is, is such an amazing place. But for me, what had to have been in 1990, we built a streamliner sidecar and I went 174 miles an hour with it in 1990, which that was the one we had hoped would make it to into the 200. But uh, I, I never got there due to circumstances, some, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that, I mean, that was the fastest that I ever went at Bonneville, but I did do it with a sidecar. And that sidecar now resides in the Barber Motorsports Museum. I'm very proud of that. That's incredible, even if it's not 200. In 1990, that was fairly respectable. That was very respectable even today. Bonneville's... Such an amazing place. Here's five miles. How fast can you go? With a streamliner sidecar, and streamliner meaning the rider's fully enclosed, so you don't see any of them. It's almost, I describe it as a, if you took a glider and took the wings off, so it's just the fuselage of a glider, that's what right. many of them can, can look like. So what is it with a side, streamliner sidecar? Is the pillion also enclosed? How does that work? Um, it's a single. What, there's no pillion. It's a single rider. It's just a, it's just a wheel on a stick, basically, uh, as far as the sidecar itself. And being a road racer, and that was that was rather interesting uh, that you mentioned that because when we did Mike Taylor, who owns Barnett Clutches and Cables, he and his wife Colleen, we designed it and built it for a passenger. 
Mike was going to mm-hmm. ride passenger in the sidecar because we're road racers and we believe mm-hmm. a sidecar should have a passenger. Um, but we took it to SCTA meet in 1990. And at that time, the uh, tech inspection was at the airport then. It mm-hmm. wasn't on the salt. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. But, and they took one look at it. Obviously, it had the potential for speed and decided, no, we're not going to allow you to carry a passenger. Um, Aha. Yeah. And so, from, it's, so it's one person. So it's the rider and the, right. the, the motorcycle has a sidecar, but there's no passenger to it. I see. It's basically a wheel on a stick. And if you look at the <laughs> um, uh, sidecars now, in fact, Scott Guthrie has a motor mm-hmm. he's in a sidecar that it's a partnership and <laughs> he's going over 300 with it now, but, oh uh, but it is a wheel on a stick. That was when we made the decision, Mike and I, and Bob Bacher who built the bike, we made the decision when Dennis Manning started the Bub motorcycle speed trials in 2004, I think it was. Mm-hmm. That's when we made the decision to switch over. In fact, in 2004, we raced both events. We went to the SCTA event. We went to the Bub event. We decided, no, they're not going to let us carry a passenger. We're going to go over to the Bub event. And that's when we started participating full time every year at the Bub event Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they allowed a passenger in the sidecar. It was optional. You didn't have to carry a passenger. But we decided to because as road racers, we hardcore or stubborn or whatever you <laughs> want to call it. <laughs> and Warren Ryan rode with me till we, uh, up until 2012, which was my last year that I was actually participated at the Salt. I had an opportunity to race a Jack Costello-designed streamliner, right. and it's called Nebulous Theorem. And it's Nebulous Theorem 5050. And the reason for the number was Jack wanted to build a streamliner motorcycle and go and get the 50cc record. And that motorcycle was actually built around Andy's frame. Andy went down (laughs) to Jack Costello's garage in San Jose and Jack said, lay on the ground. And he folded bamboo around Andy's, uh, Andy's torso and Andy's size. And that set the size for what Jack was going to build in 5050. And Andy was a was a smaller person. Like I said, he was five three. So when when Jack met him initially, he said, "All right, you're my you're my rider for this uh, crazy design." And then then Jack proceeded to build this motorcycle streamliner. It's 14 feet long and 14 inches tall. And the oh, rider, amazing. the rider um, rides it laying on their stomach with a flexi flyer type steering <laughs> system, looking out over a fiberglass fender that, that encloses the, the front wheel and tire. And Andy raced that and got a 50cc record, and I can't remember the year. And then Andy helped me break his record inside that 50cc streamliner. So I got to race it also. And I, I have to say, being fully enclosed in a streamliner motorcycle where you're wearing a full Nomex fire suit, Nomex gloves, Nomex head sock, helmet, and Nomex booties looking more like a car racer than a traditional <laughs> motorcycle racer Very true. than others. Very true. And then, then getting inside a vehicle, laying on your stomach, having them pull a five-point harness over the top of your back, and them closing the vehicle. I don't care how fast you or how slow you're going in that. That's a gnarly experience. And Absolutely. So, um, I loved it. Uh, the fastest Andy went in it, he set a record at 141, and then he helped mm-hmm. me beat his record, and I set it at 143. 
But when I, after setting that record, I got out of it and I said, you know, I, I'm ready to go back to traditional motorcycles because this streamlined <laughs> stuff is just, is just not really, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the record, but uh, being, having your nose half an inch off the salt <laughs> is something else, I have to say. Along with success in competition comes recognition in many forms. But Larry and Aaron also acknowledged the teamwork it took to accomplish their achievements. And you mentioned not having a red hat, which shocks me because you have so many other accolades um, to, your, to your name. But um, I would say being in the AMA Hall of Fame, not having a red hat is no big deal for you, Larry. You're in the <laughs> AMA Hall of Fame and you've been a world champion. In terms of, uh, of uh, proud moments, I mean, being inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame Mm-hmm. is so humbling. I, I can't think of anything better than to be judged by your peers on that level. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's uh, so humbling um, to be recognized. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, to say the least, a very, very proud moment. In racing victories, one that stands out probably, well, I might, you know, I mean, always you're always proud of your championships, but what we were able to accomplish at Long Beach in, in 1981, we hosted a, uh, we being the sidecar community hosted a, at the formula one sidecar grand prix in Long Beach in 1981, we had an mm-hmm. East West sidecar challenge and, and it was a feature event. They, that prior to that, they had had um, solo bikes and, and they bring in celebrity races, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that year we, we had the sidecar race, and we made the cover of Cycle News with that one. And Mark Bevins and I won it with a TZ750 CalGuard lubricant-sponsored sidecar outfit. But what we were able to accomplish for the sport on that level with a Formula One race and get the recognition and uh, to advance the sport a little bit, um, mm-hmm. that was a, a big moment for us. And I'm, I'm very proud that I was part of that. I know that feeling, and I know you're speaking about the team aspect of all things motorsports and in particular of motorcycling, um, you know, and uh, that we might be the ones who are the riders and um, might be the ones wearing the hats. But uh, honestly, the whole thing is a, is a team, it's a team sport. And that's something that uh, I think it was um, also Jack that really brought that to light for me and for Andy and for my whole team. And I was taught in my career in corporate marketing that, you need to know what you're good at and acknowledge what you are not good at and bring in people around you who are better than you at those things that you can't do. And then the important part of it is to get out of their way and let them do their, <laughs> let them do true. their thing. You know, um, we had a moment in, we had the opportunity to race in Bolivia at the Mike Cook top, oh, speed, right. uh, top of the world shootout um, that top one oil sponsored and we did that in 2018 pretty recently but the salt conditions were fabulous um, uh, but the weather was certainly a little little bit tricky because it's it was their winter and so it gets very windy and cold at night and I had taken a pass on my BMW S1000RR powered with nitrous and we I (laughs) blew the motor and I'm sure you've had experiences like that (laughs) so (laughs) It was the second last day of the meet, and so the time was was running down, and we were there with Ralph Hudson and Al Lamb and Rocky Robinson and all these um, incredible racers that we were just honored to be among. 
And on the second to the last day, I blew a motor. Um, the nitrous just powered through. And uh, so we had a choice either to pack it up or to hustle. And we, of course, like you do in land speed racing, we brought a spare motor that was fully prepared. And so the team, I say we, but frankly, I was just handing them tools and trying to stay out of their way. And they were able to within two hours at the end of the day in 40 mile an hour wind gusting to 50 and the temperatures dropping down to where right. they had to blow on their hands to try to get circulation. They dropped my blown motor and installed the new motor in less than two hours. And you see video and literally the top one uh, pop-up tent had been, was blowing away and we had to tie everything to, to trucks. We had to tie all the, the, the canopies to our trucks in order to, to get them to not blow away and the team was able to drop the motor and reinstall a new motor and the following morning I qualified against the record actually that Andy had set and I qualified at the speed that was one mile an hour faster than his top speed um, which was a very emotional moment for me and it was actually Ralph Hudson who told me my speed at, at the end of that pass that I'd averaged 237 miles an hour and that was absolutely incredible. And it was on the exact same motor that Andy previously had, had raced as well. And then the next, uh, the next pass, we were able to, to back it up and set a new world record. So that put me permanently in the record books right next, right next to Andy's name. And I have to say it was a pretty emotional moment, but a proud moment because he was certainly my biggest fan, <laughs> but couldn't have done it without the team just really contributing all they did. I mean, that's just such an amazing, incredible story of dedication and fortitude. I mean, changing a motor that fast is, under normal conditions, is admirable. Um. <laughs> and I think, you know, you you couldn't, uh, they, they do it out of, all the people that support us do it out of, um, out of something that you can't buy. It's, it's not it's a funny thing. It's a, it's a passion and it's a shared desire to share the success with the team, um, so I, I'm sure when you were inaugurated into the Hall of Fame, you reflected on a lot of the people who oh, helped absolutely. you along the way, and and we couldn't do it without them. It's just no, you're it, absolutely it right. Be fun. I mean, all all of the unsung heroes. There's so many people behind every racing story, or every mm-hmm. every successful or unsuccessful racer. I mean, <laughs> just as a just as a racer, you got so many people supporting you all the time that um i mean it, it's it's uh it it's so i mean you to reflect on it and you know and as the names just start rumbling and, and rolling through my memory you know i mean it's just it's phenomenally a number of people and the amount of help that 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 people through passion um mm-hmm. and and love of motorcycling and well what, what people will do it's it's just really a big family and, and i truly must admit out of all the racing that I've done, I do miss racing at Bonneville. I really do. Mm-hmm. I do miss mm-hmm. I do miss the challenge of racing at Bonneville, and I'm sure you can relate to that. Well, it's interesting. Critics who don't understand the sport will say, well, how hard is it to go fast in a straight line? <laughs> my answer to that might be, sure, it's not that hard to go fast in a straight line, but it is hard to be fastest. Quite a distinction. <laughs> so, One uh, of the most challenging things I have ever ever done to to attempt to go fast in a straight line at Bonneville. Absolutely. It's a sport that requires the perfection of both aerodynamics and traction and power and getting them all dialed in properly and working together. And 
the number of times that you're so close, but not quite there. Life as a racer is multidimensional. The same qualities that Larry and Aaron used in competition have also come in handy in their other motorcycling endeavors. I was a manufacturer's rep for years. I mean, I started out with when I quit road racing, I went to work for my sponsor, Calgard Lubricants. And uh, we were actually, we actually had one of the first road shows on the road back in 1982, 81, 82, 83. We put a, and it was me. I mean, I was, I spent my first two years in the motorcycle industry, 10 months on the road in a box van, calling on motorcycle shops and selling lubricants. Well, I, on Fridays, if I was a motorcycle shop and I saw a poster in the window, it said enduro or scrambles or road races. Well, hey, how about if I come out and put out the awning? Maybe we could put registration or something under the awning of the truck. And did a lot of marketing really in the field. And I got very involved in AMA flat track. I ended up sitting on the AMA advisory board as, as a manufacturer's rep. And then I continued on with my manufacturing rep job. And, and oh, shoot, I've worked for a lot of companies. But with the digital age and things being done in a virtual manner, the manufacturer's rep has almost become a dinosaur. <laughs> and so I find myself now working with IMS, which I really enjoy the international motorcycle shows in their marketplace section. But um, yeah, I'm mean, pretty much been put to pasture by the internet and that's okay. <laughs> You've picked the perfect time for retirement, Larry. I did indeed. <laughs> Although I like, yeah. I, as a student of the industry, I like to stay in touch with the industry. I studied the industry. I like to look at trends. That's why I'm fascinated by and interested in what you're doing. And that brings me to your work with women riders, which is such a burgeoning portion of our sport. And you have been right from the get-go, very, very instrumental and, and worked really hard and continue to work hard. And I really, really admire your work that you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it started back for, for me. Andy and I were on the salt in 2005 and Scooter Grubb asked to have a photograph of all of the women who were there riding and it was myself and Valerie Thompson and two others who got together for this girls photo or women of Bonneville photo and there were only four of us in it and Andy and I Mm. were talking on the drive back home about what a shame that was and so we decided to start the Shimoto scholarship where we would try to encourage other women to race and one of the cool things about motorsports is often men and women will race equally against one another and in land speed racing that is the case and sometimes we can be a little bit faster, um, not to offend the, the other half of the species out there, but I might be a little bit smaller in the shoulders. Right. So we, so women can be and are very successful in the, in the sport. So we started the Shimoto Scholarship where we provide a small financial award for, uh, the, for a woman racer. And we've had an opportunity to give that out every year that the Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials event has has started. So we've given over uh, almost $30,000 back to the sport. And the fun part about it is the recipients of that award put it right back into the sport. So I've been told that they bought a new fairing with it, that they bought a new trailer, <laughs> all of that. But And I'm trying to continue that. When I had the opportunity to retire from my corporate world a little over five years ago, I really, really leaned in hard to what I can do in motorcycling overall. So I've had the opportunity to serve on the, the AMA 
Heritage Foundation, which helps fund the AMA Hall of Fame, and I have the opportunity to work with the AMA Rules Commission and the FIM Women in Motorsports Commission. But honestly, the thing that's most fun for me right now is, um, along with my co-chair, Sarah Schulke, we are running an organization called Women Riders Now, which was started by Genevieve Schmidt over 20 years ago as an online magazine designed to be a resource for female motorcyclists and all those who encourage them. And so Sarah and I had an opportunity to take over Women Riders Now and bring it forward for the next 20 years. And it's been something where I, I have to say, I think I failed in retirement because I'm now <laughs> sometimes, somehow I'm back in a full-time job, which is, 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 uh, wasn't my plan, but that's all right. I, I love it. We are trying to continue the legacy that Genevieve built of providing a resource, whether it's best bikes for women, whether it's gear, whether it's reader reviews, really anything that our audience wants. And trying to ensure that we help them overcome some of the barriers that might be out there. So it's been a labor of love. It allows me to continue to work in the motorcycle and kind of give back to the motorcycle industry. And I don't know how long I'll continue racing. This allows me to, to contribute back and I'm super excited about it. So thank you for asking. And your women and kids are the future of the sport. in, in my opinion, we need oh, I agree. Uh, women to grow from their current ranking of, 20% of motorcycle owners are female, and that's great, but that doesn't really represent the 50% of the population that we are. But getting kids out there riding, I love the work that the Strider Foundation is doing and All Kids Bike, where they donate striders to kid, to elementary schools so that kids grow up on, on two wheels and don't fear it, but rather embrace it and uh, and and get to grow up you know, doing what we're doing. And maybe they'll be sitting here and 55 and 60 years <laughs> talking about how they, uh, how they started on a little strider, you know, but that's the future I think of our sport. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Sound familiar? Before they ever met on the salt, Larry and Aaron's paths crossed in a rather unusual way. I can't remember the first time I became aware of the Bonneville Salt Flats, but I believe it was as a kid, my father watching the wide world of sports when Speed Week was actually covered. Remember the intro with the wide world of sports where they had the guy that did oh. the tumble with the ski? We were actually in there with a sidecar for a while. And then it's your fault that I got into this crazy sport there. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Larry Coleman and Aaron Sills. To learn more about AMA racing and the AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame, visit AmericanMotorcyclist.com. On the Line with the AMA is a production of the American Motorcyclist Association. Since 1924, the AMA has been promoting the motorcycle lifestyle and protecting the future of motorcycling.